Welcome back to the podcast. In our last episode, we learned about John Wheelwright, who was banished from the Massachusetts Bay Colony and took refuge to the north in the ruins of the late Sir John Mason's New Hampshire colony. Ultimately, Wheelwright and Massachusetts came to understand each other. His banishment was lifted and Wheelwright died in the colony, an old man and stand-up citizen of the community. But now we're going to look at the other dissidents, the other people banished from Massachusetts, the ones who didn't go north, the ones who never reconciled, the ones who went south. As such, the next couple episodes will focus on the small independent settlements, their own universe, their own colonies that would eventually become Rhode Island. And so with that, naturally, Roger Williams comes up, known to all students of history famously as the founder of Rhode Island. We're going to see in this next set of episodes that that's not exactly true. He is a founder. He founded Providence or Providence Plantations, but the germ of the state that was known as Rhode Island and Providence Plantations up until very recently is more complicated than just Roger Williams. Now, if you're already angry at me, I will admit right off the bat, of everyone involved in the founding of Rhode Island, Roger Williams is number one. I'm just saying the story is a little more complicated than you learned in school. Roger Williams was born towards the tail end of 1603 in the dingy streets of London. He came from a family of merchant tailors, which is kind of an obscure term and doesn't really identify his socioeconomic status. Now, a merchant tailor could be a working tailor who also deals in selling fabrics, fabrics that he might make himself or his family or his employees. And this could be a very small scale operation or the same term could describe a much larger fabric wholesaler. But in the case of Roger Williams, the position of his father as a merchant tailor would have put his family in the lower middle class in the very least. And this would be in terms of classes of the day, which don't correspond with the lower middle class of our world right now. And this is a world that was very consumed with class and status, more so than today and far less fluid than today. I'm going to hazard a educated guess that his family would rank slightly below Wheelwright's family from our last episode. But he was a smart kid who made it to Cambridge University. He wanted to become an Anglican minister. And this is when he fell into the Puritan movement. Now, in his youth, if you were a Puritan, you could still find some employment within the church structure at a lower level somewhere along the way. But as you move into the 1620s and Roger is graduating from Cambridge and he is very outspoken, his views already far to the Puritan fringe, maybe even beyond that, it became obvious he would be given no flock to shepherd over. If you remember in our last episode, reverends like Wheelwright, they were silenced by the church and many removed from their positions. Now, this is a form of persecution. We often think of persecution as being tortured or being burned at the stake or some sort of bodily harm, but denying somebody their employment, their livelihood, and then disconnecting them from the audience of people who wants to hear them, well, that is a form of persecution. Today, we would call that deplatforming. And starting in 1625, Prince Charles, soon to be King Charles, asked William Laud, soon to be the Archbishop of Canterbury, to start making a list of Puritan-leaning clergy. And so Williams knew there was no public office for him to hold. Now, believe it or not, at the time, the very wealthy would hire their own private clergy to be the pastor of their families and then also fill other duties, like educating their children 
in certain studies, such as Latin. And this is where Williams found employment. One of these families were the Barringtons. And in 1629, Roger Williams asked Lady Barrington permission to marry her niece Jane, whom he was probably tutoring. Lady Barrington refuses to sanction the marriage and cites his low status, his low class. As charming as Roger Williams may have been, he simply was born into a family of a different status. The Williams family was not good enough for the Barringtons. And just to give you some frame of reference, her own son-in-law was Oliver Cromwell. Heartbroken and defeated, Roger Williams couldn't be held down for long. In that very same year, he marries one Mary Bernard, whose father was a Puritan reverend, much like himself. But now I have to use that term Puritan in, the, in its widest sense, because Roger Williams arrives in Boston in February of 1631 with his wife in tow. And it is known by that point he had moved beyond the scope of a normal Puritan straight into separatist territory, much like the original Plymouth settlers who came on the Mayflower. Now, being a Brownist or separatist, they believed that the Anglican church was beyond saving, beyond salvation, beyond purifying, and that a righteous Calvinist congregation could only exist in its truest sense outside of the Anglican church, which was far too lax in its morality, which remained under the control of a king, and which resembled the Catholic church to a great degree. Williams, boom, shows up in Boston. He's already in this second class of people, separatists. Evidence as such, once Roger Williams arrived, he was invited to preach at the new church in Boston until their reverend returned from England. But since that congregation would not commit to a full break with the Anglican church, Roger Williams declined. Williams then went to preach at the Salem church, who greatly wanted him. But then the Boston church advised them not to hire Williams. At this time, these separate churches were in communion with one another, and having a reverend there who was a complete separatist might cause an issue with that communion. Also, remember, this colony is very young. We take Massachusetts for granted, like it's set in stone. At this point, it's three and a half so years old. If it was a person, it wouldn't even be in preschool. It being very clear that he would not be welcomed in his profession in the Massachusetts colony, he then went to the Plymouth Colony, of course, founded by separatists, where he was welcomed, and he served in a position of a unofficial assistant reverend for a while. But even in Plymouth, his views were recorded as strange, described as strange. One thing he begins at this point and just continues to keep doing is he questions the validity of colonial charters. The right of the King of England, at this time also the King of Scotland, to claim large swaths of Native American land and then parcel it out to people without first receiving any sort of confirmation, submission, bill of sale from those natives. Of course, at this early date, the English settlers do purchase the land from the natives in some form or the other. But Williams was questioning whether or not the king had the right to claim it before any of that ever even happened. He questioned the assumption of sovereignty over this land full of people who had no knowledge or recognition of this faraway king. Now, the Plymouth colony had some rudimentary rights to their land in the English system. They didn't really have a right to govern from any specific body back in England. And being that they were founded by separatists, 
Plymouth was the very edge of the English Empire. They were barely, barely hanging on, barely on the radar, barely accepted. As much as it might seem like Roger Williams would fit in perfectly in Plymouth, he, just like he was in Massachusetts, was a liability. He was too loud. He would publish pamphlets saying these things. God forbid one of these pamphlets made it back to England, to the Privy Council, to Parliament. And again, we take Plymouth for granted. It's just, it's solidified into our history books. But like Massachusetts, it itself is not set in stone. Plymouth at this point would be 12 years old. If it was a person, it would be going into seventh grade. Just to drive this point home, back in England, William Loud, that reverend who before was making a list for Prince Charles, has now been made the Archbishop of Canterbury. This is the year 1633. And so more than ever, Plymouth, Massachusetts, they wanted to be quiet. The less England proper hears about them, the better. Rogers will not be long for Plymouth, but in his time there, a period of shorter than two years, he learns the native languages in the area. He gets to know the Narragansett and the Wampanoag specifically. And importantly here, he really gets to know Osemequin, who is going to be the paramount chief of the Wampanoag Confederation. This will be the same guy that made the treaty with the uh, Plymouth settlers in 1621. The same person who sent in Samoset to make first contact, sent over to Squantum later on. The English record his name as Massasoit, meaning great leader. He's the, the head of the natives who show up at Thanksgiving, if you don't know too much about early American history. He's an important dude and will show up again in our story. Sometime in 1633, Rogers is forced out of Plymouth, not banished, just there isn't a lot of opportunity there. They kind of want him gone. And he ends up in Salem, part of the Massachusetts colony, the same place that he was asked to be the reverend for before, and Boston did not approve. This time, he manages to get a gig there of some sort. So you would think, given these hardships and being in the New World and among these different communities, that he would start to soften. He would start to come around towards some sort of center, become moderate in his views. No, he just goes even further, doubles down on his pre-existing views, and then pushes the line further out. Now he not only questions the validity of a king to claim all these foreign lands, he actually says that it was a sin for the king to claim these lands because he was essentially committing uh, an act of theft. Now, if you listen to previous episodes, you know back in England, 1634, 33, 35, in that zone of time, the, the great Sir Ferdinando Gorgias and his friends on the Council for New England are trying to find ways to undo the Massachusetts Bay Charter. They want to get rid of Massachusetts and install their own order over the top of it, which would also include the formal introduction of the Anglican Church to the New World. Massachusetts cannot have this guy accusing the king himself of sin. And so he is put in front of the General Court of Massachusetts. And in December of 1633, he gives satisfaction to the court and he retracts some of his most inflammatory statements including what he deduced from the king having no right to these native lands, that the Massachusetts Bay Charter, derived from the Council for New England, derived from the power of the king himself, was invalid. Williams backs off on his statements. After all, he has a wife and he has kids. There are people to support. And so he relents for what was probably all about eight months. 
Because in August of 1634, Roger Williams becomes the pastor of the Salem Church. And he immediately uses the pulpit to not only rehash all of the things that got him in trouble before, but now he has a whole new list of grievances. He says that Massachusetts needs to seek out a new charter, as the old one was acquired based on rights the king never had. Massachusetts also had state-mandated church attendance, whether or not you were a member of that congregation. He said that was immoral, and that the church and state should be separate entities. He further went after all Christian monarchs, Catholic, Protestant alike, for claiming land anywhere in the world that was not their own. Roger Williams argued that the land could not be claimed by a king in the name of Christendom because Christendom itself was a lie. Nations were civil bodies, perhaps containing Christians, but were not themselves the body of Christ with agency and were often found fighting with each other. There is no Christendom a broad condemnation of the entire imperial age and Western Europe. To get more specific, he said that these Puritan colonies, where by this point the local reverends are all calling them a new Israel, a new chosen people, a new chosen nation, a city on a hill. Roger Williams says, no, Massachusetts, Plymouth, they're not the new Israel. Israel is dead. Israel died as a real political entity and an idea died long ago. This was a startling materialistic view of the present and history for Roger Williams to spew from inside of a church. Williams even advocated for the non-church members in the colony to not have to make an oath of allegiance to Massachusetts, as the court would require from time to time, because that oath would require swearing to God. And what if that person doesn't believe in God? Yes, you heard me right. We're in the 1630s in Puritan New England, and here we have an individual advocating for the political rights of atheists. It is very difficult to find another individual during this time anywhere in the world who has the set of views that I just laid out over the last five minutes or so, which at least I view as shockingly modern. And what's interesting to note is, as I read different books on English history by the, the greatest historians of the last hundred years, the American colonies are footnotes in those books, barely mentioned to the history of England proper, especially of the 17th century. Believe it or not, you probably won't hear of John Winthrop. You probably won't see in that book the name William Bradford. You won't see Miles Standish. Maybe a slight reference to Reverend John Cotton, but almost begrudgingly, an English history book on this time period, if it's covering general social history and developments, it will begrudgingly mention Roger Williams. Because again, his views seem so far ahead of his time that you have to mention it. His views on church and state clearly belong a uh, hundred years ahead of his time in the 18th century. And his views on Native Americans, which we'll flush out more as the episode goes on, belongs all the way in the 20th century. This, of course, is when those views would be considered within normal to hold. Coming back around to our main story, in July of 1635, for these views, Williams is officially warned by the general court, letting him know, we don't approve, we're watching you, and the next step is that we're going to take some action here. And behind the scene... Different Massachusetts officials are trying to push Roger Williams out of the Salem church. 
to the point of excluding and otherwise intimidating certain members of that congregation. Williams fires off two separate letters, sending a copy of each to every church in the Massachusetts colony. The first letter outlines all the various abuses that his church has suffered at the hands of authorities in Massachusetts. The second letter proposed that the Salem church break off communion with all of the other Massachusetts churches, thus becoming its own separatist congregation. Just to remind you, in 1635, the uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony is, is frantic over a rumor that Sir Ferdinando Gorgias has a professional army of 1,500 soldiers coming to the colony to formally submit it to his rule. They're drilling their militias more than ever. They're building up their fortifications. They're expecting to be invaded. Now more than ever, internal threats or dissension has to be squashed. In October, Williams is formally called to the general court to answer to these letters he's been circulating. The nature of the letters speak for themselves, and Roger Williams offers no retraction. As such, the court finds him guilty of sedition and heresy. The punishment, of course, would be banishment. However, at the moment, Williams was quite ill, and he was given six weeks of time in the colony in order to recover as long as he stopped spreading his ideas. Back in Salem, now with a sentence over his head and extremely ill, his own congregation begins to fall away from him. Only a minority of the small village now supports him, and despite all this, he won't stop sharing his views. He keeps talking, and he doesn't go anywhere. The six weeks pass, he's still in Salem. Come the end of 1636, colonial authorities realize they're going to have to force him out of the colony one way or another, and they hatch a plan to arrest Williams and pay someone to take him by boat back to England, far away. This is something they've done before to Thomas Morton, who you can find in our Marymount episode. And now the dates get fuzzy because everything that's going to happen is a bit clandestine. But either in late December 1635 or very early January 1636, Roger Williams gets word of this plan, perhaps from John Winthrop himself. And Williams flees into the wilderness, sick and as the earliest sources claim, completely alone. By the time the sheriff arrives at Williams's house, he was gone. The great heretic would not be deported back to England. They didn't know where he would resurface, but were sure that he would be causing them further headaches. Or maybe he would just die. He was sick. It's the dead of winter. As far as they know, he has nowhere to go. Well, he did have a couple places to go. Someone I brought up earlier was the great Wampanoag Sachem Osamequin, or Osamequin, you could say his name either way. It's known that Roger Williams was in the care of the Wampanoag in the spring, so it's likely that he stayed at Osamequin's winter camp. This undoubtedly saved Roger Williams' life, and he remained eternally grateful to Osamequin. He came to the opinion, living among the natives, that they were spiritually or morally just as good as any Christian and that their societies were far more peaceful, at least internally. He says of them, A man shall never hear of such crimes amongst them, of robberies, murders, adulterers, etc., as amongst the English. It is likely over winter, native messengers traveled to and from Salem, 
to communicate with those who were still willing to follow Williams, who now planned in coordination with the natives to make a colony of his own, which would be a refuge to anyone searching for freedom of conscience and willing to live peaceably. His wife and children remained in Salem, including their newborn daughter named Freeborn. A lot of symbolism there. And as much anxiety as Williams must have felt over the winter, there was also a lot of opportunity, a lot to look forward to at this point. He had wandered the wilderness and now was organizing his fold and would be leading his own exodus. From the point of view of the Wampanoag, which is rarely spoken of, their traditional enemies were the Narragansett, who did not have direct access with the Plymouth settlers or the Massachusetts settlers. The Massachusetts tribe and the Wampanoag having control of those contact points. To the west, they competed with the Pequot for attention from the Dutch traders. The Narragansett wanted European traders of their own, which sounds strange to modern ears. You think that the natives should be weary of Europeans. But remember, we're talking 1636. The English are few in number, and they provide useful trade goods you can't otherwise get. And if they really like you, they'll sell you guns, and they're an additional ally to be used against your traditional enemies. Now, Osemaquin of the Wampanoag, he decided to settle Roger Williams down in what is now Rumford, Rhode Island, which would be at the edge of the Wampanoag territories, but firmly within their boundaries and bordering the Narragansett. This way, that often volatile no-man's land between nations would be filled by a third party who could serve as arbitrator or just a block between them and a trading partner for both. Because although the Wampanoag were quite strong at this point through their allegiance with the Plymouth colony, they never had the numbers again that the Narragansett had because of earlier plagues that swept through New England greatly reduced the number of Wampanoag and not so much the Narragansett. Osemaquin knew it would be better to try to pacify them and perhaps start to strengthen those links between neighbors. Members of his Salem fold start to trickle in slowly to this new settlement. Small as it was, the Plymouth colony eventually took notice. And based on the land that they had purchased from Osemaquin, they believed that Roger Williams' new settlement actually fell within their own colony. And at first, they didn't really care too much about that. They were fairly welcoming, if not just benign, towards Roger Williams. But the Massachusetts colony, far greater in number, far more powerful, pressured the Plymouth colony to send Roger Williams basically an eviction notice. Governor Winslow told Williams specifically that they were loath to displease the Bay. But the governor said that if they would only remove to the other side of Narragansett Bay, they would be happy neighbors. Osemaquin consented to this idea. And Roger Williams went to the Narragansett on the western edge of the bay, whom he had some familiarity with and traded with when he lived in the Plymouth colony. And from the Sachems Canonicus and Maya Tanomi, he purchased the land that would become Providence, and probably more familiar to you as Providence Plantations. Now, this location, not that far from the original, served the same purpose, except being in Wampanoag territory, it was now in Narragansett territory but he would still serve as the go-between and peacekeeper of the Wampanoag and the Narragansett. 
Also yearly, he would provide tribute to the Narragansett in acknowledgement that his land purchase also came with the establishment of a relationship between the two entities, which you will find to be the native view. You don't just buy land outright from a native nation. If you acquire the land from a native nation, you are also beginning the process of binding two groups of people to one another. And specifically, these tributes would go to Canonicus, who Rogers came to see as kind of like a father figure. And like with Osemequin, he never forgot the generosity that these two native sachems provided him. And in his own words, provided him, when the hearts of my countrymen and friends failed me. He goes on to say quite clearly that Providence was a settlement not founded on conquering, not founded on an English charter, not bought and paid for, but a settlement founded on love. And that's the term he uses. Which brings us to an interesting point, and one you just don't expect to see in an English colony, that Providence had the full approval of two separate native nations, whom you can argue quite convincingly decided exactly where to put Roger Williams. If this was a game of chess, he was their pawn. At the end of the day, it was the natives who said, Providence will be right here. On the flip side of things, in terms of the position of Providence within this English empire, Providence had no permission, grant, charter, anything from any English authority in 1636. Which brings us back to our last episode, where John Wheelwright created the Exeter Compact, his own what is described as semi-independent republic in the middle of New Hampshire, which was at the time without government. Which brings us back to the topic and the strange habit that English people had at the time, in lieu of having any established government, they feel they have the right to make one for themselves. This act of self-determination appears self-evident to us today, but it seems to be quite unique in the Western world among the English. As we learned about the French in our last season, they aren't doing this. The Dutch, the Spanish, the Portuguese, they're not doing this. But we'll see time and time again when the English had the opportunity to form their own compact combination, to write up a constitution, they do it. And obviously, this flows right into mainstream American history. And because it's present at such an early date, I can only conclude the attitude that you have the right to form your own government comes from merry old England. That's a rabbit hole for me to go down at some later time. Roger Williams and his crew were actually not the first Englishmen to settle the area of Providence. Reverend Blackstone, or Blackstone, that we learned about in our Wessagusset episodes, he became a bit of a hermit, and he resided in a secluded area that is now Boston. When the Massachusetts Bay Colony uh, sent over their first boatload of colonists, he welcomed them, but soon found himself crowded out once again, and he retreated to Narragansett country. And now his seclusion would be broken by Roger Williams, who will be the spearhead for dissidents, turning away from Massachusetts and heading south. One of the first things that Williams does is he creates a compact, and not one that he plans on enforcing right away or is even done working on. He sends a draft of it to Governor Winthrop of Massachusetts for advice. This might sound weird, but if you remember, it might have been Governor Winthrop who warned Roger Williams that they were planning on putting him on a boat and sending him back to England. The truth of the matter is, 
Governor Winthrop had a lot of money invested in Williams and his various trading operations with the Narragansett and the Wampanoag, and they'll continue to have a long correspondence after this point. Winthrop, on the surface, appears to be everything Roger Williams is against. But when money is involved and safety, you make strange bedfellows. So without any finalized compact, Williams allowed the first iteration of Providence to be run by a simple majority. The men who headed the various families would be able to simply raise their hand and vote on an issue, and whatever the majority wants, the majority gets. And indeed, like many early colonies, Roger Williams devised Providence as being more of a corporate organization than a municipality. And all of these heads of families, they owned Providence together as common stock with equal distribution. And that includes the land. Roger Williams divided up all the land equally between families, including for himself. He didn't put himself ahead of the others. This is somewhat similar to the very early uh, settlement of Plymouth, but is quite different than a lot of the Puritan colonies, such as the colony of New Haven, which we'll learn about. There was definite recognition of who was the leader, who would get more, who would get less. Providence didn't have this, and it would be very hard to even know that Roger Williams was the founder, originator, or shepherd of the colony, which would be inundated by a second and third wave of settlers, many coming from Salem. Slowly, all of Roger Williams' followers from back in Massachusetts were found out and exiled if they would not repent, and as they fled into Providence, Roger Williams would sell them the land at cost. And so whatever amount he had to pay the natives for that parcel, he would now expect that from a new settler, and then they would own it outright. It became routine that the heads of the various families would meet every two weeks. As the families became more numerous, it became time to create the position of what they called a single town officer, which Roger Williams was elected to. He would be the presiding officer over these town meetings. And what's interesting here is that he did everything in the name of the king, implying that somehow his power as town officer or the, the legitimacy of providence was dependent upon the king of England, when in fact the king of England had not authorized such a settlement, probably had never even heard of it. But Roger Williams knew if some official of the king did come by or he was called back to England to testify as to the validity of his settlement, he could show records that would imply the allegiance that they had toward the king and England in general. So at worst, just a meaningless gesture, but a potentially useful tool later on. Slowly, they put together this compact or combination to govern themselves, and in some ways it was extremely revolutionary. For one thing, it makes no mention of God whatsoever. There would be in Providence a strict separation of church and state. All landowning men would be able to vote, which in Massachusetts and Connecticut at this time, you had to be a church member in order to earn any level of suffrage. There was also no mandatory church attendance, also something the Puritan colonies liked to enforce. And there was no mandatory church attendance because there was no mandatory church. There was no state church. There was no sanctioned church. There was no state-approved church, any way you want to say it. On this matter, Roger Williams said, In a sense of God's merciful providence unto me in my distress, called the place providence, I desired it might be a shelter for persons distressed for conscience. And putting all things religious and civil aside, Roger Williams had to set up a way to make a living for himself. Well, the Narragansett gave him choice property for a trading post, which, especially in this early period, would serve to be the main source of his income and possibly one of the ventures that Governor Winthrop invested in. 
This business connection between the two men is important because it kept Providence safer, having leading men in Massachusetts invested in it. But the Narragansett alone did not have a huge supply of furs. Even by the 1630s, the elusive beaver, which created the most desirable pelt and so went for the most money back in Europe, were becoming quite scarce. And so while Rogers could depend on furs for a good chunk of his income, it wouldn't be the mainstay of the entire Providence colony. The people of Providence learned to raise livestock. Many times they would deposit a herd on a small island in Narragansett Bay, protected from predators, without even having to build a fence. And around this time, 1637 and 1638, the largest of these islands, known by several names, but the one you would recognize is Rhode Island, was of particular interest to a group of people in Massachusetts still, who were also dissidents and were also facing banishment. Roger Williams welcomed them to the area, and then he facilitated the sale of Rhode Island to this group from the Narragansett. It's important to note here that Roger Williams had no governance over this group. They were simply friendly neighbors in a similar situation. And so there is no Rhode Island and Providence plantations yet. There's no unity whatsoever. In fact, this group that settled Rhode Island, they founded the settlement of Portsmouth on the north side of the island. But within a year or two, they had split in half, and one faction went to the south side of the island and founded Newport. And so now we have Providence, Newport, and Portsmouth, all living under separate compacts. This would be the same era of time where Roger Williams plays a small but critical part in the Pequot War. An Englishman was killed on Block Island by a bunch of natives. The authorities in Massachusetts were convinced that it was committed by the Narragansett, and they were inclined to attack them. It was Roger Williams who informed them that it was not the Narragansett, his allies, but it was a people further to the west, known as the Pequot. And thus he saved both Massachusetts and the Narragansett from a devastating war, as the Narragansett would have been a far greater match for Massachusetts than the Pequot. Furthermore, it's known that Rogers convinced the Narragansett not to aid the Pequot in this war. You don't have to aid the English, just stay out of the drama. And again, he saved both the Massachusetts and the Narragansett from a potential conflict. He did this upon hearing news that the Narragansett were hosting a delegation of Pequot, knowing war was a-brewing. And he traveled some 30 miles by canoe in a storm overnight to arrive at a great council of Narragansett with the Pequot present. And through his pre-existing relationship with Canonicus, he convinced them not to join the war as reward for his help early in the conflict. And eventually Rogers would help the English convince the Narragansett to aid them against the Pequot. And for helping to later end the war, Governor Winthrop rewarded Roger Williams with a Pequot boy to be taken as servant slave. At the end of the war, most of the Pequot who couldn't find friendly refuge among another native neighbor were absorbed by the Mohegans under Chief Uncas, a great ally to the English. But the women and children of many of the prominent families were taken to the Puritan colonies to become servants. And thus the leading families of the former Pequot would be firmly under the Puritans' eyes and not among the natives. The young boy that Williams received, he would refer to as Will. He named him after himself. Will was the son of Mononato, who was the brother of Sassicus, both great leaders of the Pequot. The Pequot boy Will's mother was being held as servant by the Winthrop family. And Roger Williams 
used Will to take messages from Providence to Massachusetts and back, where he could spend time with his mother and siblings, and also reaffirm the connection between Roger Williams and John Winthrop. Some sources will say that Williams saved Will from becoming a slave who would be sold off to the Sugar Islands in the Caribbean, which often happened among native enemies that the Puritan colonies would capture. We'll see this in the uh, later King Philip's War. You capture an enemy native, and then you sell them off to the Sugar Islands. Not only do you derive some profit from it, but then you also take an enemy and move them far, far away from you. And so again, some authors who are very charitable to Roger Williams will say that he saved young William from that fate. But let's dive into this relationship a little closer. Williams gave young Will the freedom to travel by himself and even see his family. Young Will never ran away. And in fact, at a certain point, he was given the choice to live again with his mother and he chose to stay in Providence. And so what was Will to Williams is a confusing and hotly debated subject. The historian Toby Pearl, she says of this relationship, the historical record does not fully indicate whether Williams perceived the young Pequot boy as a prisoner of war, a servant, or a slave. And so in the many ways that Roger Williams was ahead of his time, this might be the one example where he fails to meet a modern standard. Although the interactions between the boy and Williams would suggest that they didn't have a slave owner, slave relationship, such as you would see in the antebellum South. But nonetheless, there it is. Now let's turn to Roger Williams' religious mindset. As I've already said, he was a man who believed that government should be separated from religion, that there was a proper place in society for a secular sphere. But he was deeply religious, a reverend himself, an Anglican originally who moved toward the Puritan end of the spectrum, and then straight off of it into the separatist territory. But in Providence, by the year 1638, believe it or not, he became a Baptist. And he organized, with a few others in the town, the very first Baptist church in America. But it's known that Williams, within a year or two, had abandoned the Baptist faith. Then it's believed he briefly became an Anabaptist. The spiritual descendants of the Anabaptists you would know today as the Amish and the Mennonites. But he fell in and out of that faith even faster than he did with the Baptist faith. The historian Edwin Gausted said that of Roger Williams, one could never meet Williams halfway or agree with him in part. It was all or nothing. On top of Roger Williams being uncompromising, he was also a man full of doubt, not really sure of what was or was not in all things spiritual. William Bradford of Plymouth Plantation wrote, that Roger Williams was a man godly and zealous, having many precious parts, but very unsettled in judgment. Roger Williams briefly gravitated toward the character of Anne Hutchinson, who was the most famous settler of Rhode Island, the Portsmouth colony specifically. Anne Hutchinson, as we'll learn in the next episode, was always so very certain of what she believed or what she knew, where some people would think something, she would know it. And people who are lost, like Roger Williams, will gravitate toward the person who seems to know everything. And they had valuable conversations with one another. And both of them would end up at their own lonely endpoint, very similar in view, but in isolation, where Anne at the end became pretty much a religion of one, and maybe some family members. And Roger Williams, too, a religion of one, having no church affiliation whatsoever later in life. To focus on Williams specifically, 
building on his earlier belief that Israel as a physical place and as an idea was dead, he came to realize that apostolic secession, in other words, the line of people from Jesus to his immediate apostles to their apostles, had long since broken and disappeared and could not be reestablished until the return of Jesus. As such, any organized church is at best a guess, a man-made concept. He would turn to the Narragansett and the Wampanoag, and as he learned about their spiritual beliefs, found that these beliefs did just as much good for them as the Christian religion would do for the English. Whereas Anne Hutchinson would promote this direct spiritual connection to God, and thus not needing a church or a Bible or a reverend, Roger Williams went in the other direction, and at least for a time, saw the breaking of tradition in the intervening centuries as a complete disconnect from God that could only be reestablished by God himself. But now back to Providence proper. By 1640, the estimates are vague, but there may have been a hundred people there, one source estimates, while another says that there was around 40 families. Now, I believe 40 families would make more than 100 people, but either way, there was actually more people settled on Rhode Island under these newer colonies than in Providence proper. Not only did Rogers not have any jurisdiction over these other settlements, they were actually larger and more prosperous than his own older Providence plantations. James A. Warren, the author of God, War, and Providence, writes of this period, In the late 1630s and early 1640s, the union of small towns on the Narragansett Bay was informally maintained and barely a union at all. I would go so far as to say it wasn't a union, but a loose confederation with some system of correspondence between the settlements. And it would become more and more apparent that this loose configuration would not maintain their independence, especially from Massachusetts. As you come into the year 1642, the king is storming Parliament with 400 soldiers. Parliament, being forewarned of this event, was able to run King Charles straight out of London. And we have a civil war on our hands. This coincides with Massachusetts creeping north up the Atlantic coast, absorbing parts of New Hampshire and eventually Maine. Well, now they would also try to expand to the south. If Massachusetts could come to bring Rhode Island and Providence to heel, the many people they banished who ended up in this area would then have to quickly vacate or sell their properties and find somewhere else to live. And the idea of Providence as a safe haven for people who are seeking liberty of conscience would be completely destroyed. And Massachusetts has a slow, grinding way of getting control of different areas. As we saw in the previous episodes, having friendly settlers in the area was step one. Redefining the boundaries of your charter, step two. Having townspeople submit petitions to the General Court of Massachusetts, step three. And then once the ground is well watered, agents from Massachusetts showing up in appointing new leaders under a Massachusetts jurisdiction. And they could get away with this because of the chaos back in England proper. John Winthrop, supposed friend of Roger Williams, in 1642, writes that Providence and Rhode Island are under no government. This is part of step one, to deny that any government exists there in the first place. Here's a curious event from the same year, in September of 1642. There was a Providence offshoot called Pawtuxet, not Patuxet, which was the native name for Plymouth. There was a Massachusetts sympathizer there who basically led the little offshoot called William Arnold. Arnold previously stole William's deed for Providence and cut out all references to Powtuxet. Having done that, he now submitted to the Massachusetts General Court 
a request to be absorbed by the colony. Let's put that on the back burner. Massachusetts then organizes the NEC, the New England Confederation, or the United Colonies of New England. Not uniting with Rhode Island and specifically excluding Rhode Island, New Hampshire, and Maine. It consisted of Massachusetts, Plymouth, the New Haven Colony, and the New Connecticut Colony. These four would become the Puritan colonies, and in their unity would undermine and aggressively go after the lands of Rhode Island and Providence. The Mohegan leader Uncas comes back into the story now. Uncas had been pursued in a number of assassination attempts from a Narragansett sachem named Mayantanomo, nephew to the great Canonicus himself. Uncas gets the better of him and manages to capture Mayantanomo, and he brings him in front of the court of this United Colonies of New England to ask permission to kill Mayantanomo. This was not an act of subservience to the United Colonies, as some authors would suggest, but rather common procedure among Native American tribes in the Northeast to consult with their allies when considering killing a very important enemy who might trigger a war with their death. The court, in their own way, approves of the killing, as long as it happens away from them. And with that, Mayantanomo, a person who signed off on many of the land deals that Roger played part in in establishing Providence and the other plantations around him, he was uh, at least a small part of validating the colony's existence. Uncas took him and split his head in half with a tomahawk, and then he cut a piece of flesh from the dead man's shoulder and ate it, and proclaimed that it was the sweetest meat he ever had. Within the Narragansett country, the sachems that now favored Connecticut and Massachusetts and New Haven received more clout, as now it became apparent that these new United Colonies of New England were quite powerful. One of the last land sales that Mayantanomi was party to was the location of Shawamet to a group of people known as the Gortonists, organized under Samuel Gorton, a man pretty much kicked out of every other place in New England, including Providence. But Williams secured a nice spot for him nearby and organized an agreement with the Narragansett. With Mayantanomi dead, the Massachusetts Bay Colony denied the validity of the sale and actually found the sachems who were more inclined to them to deny that the sale was legitimate. A man by the name of William Coddington, who would lead the settlement of Newport on the south end of Rhode Island, then submits a petition to the Massachusetts government for the absorption of Rhode Island. So native allies are being killed. Shawomet is being invaded by an army bent on removing the Gortonists. And Hutchinson flees to New Netherland. Powell tucks it. The offshoot of Providence is being infected within, and the deed of Providence altered to give Massachusetts an in to absorbing it. Roger Williams' safe haven is quickly crumbling around him. But now where he had previously ran away, to New England, Plymouth, Massachusetts, the outskirts of Plymouth, and then removed to his settlement of Providence, he would make his stand. Williams would now go to England and try to receive some sort of charter from the parliamentary government, for whom Massachusetts and the other Puritan colonies had already submitted themselves. In England, he becomes quick friends with the Earl of Warwick, with Sir Henry Vane, with Oliver Cromwell. He publishes a book on the native languages of Southern New England, establishing himself as an authority on all things New England. He also publishes a second book called The Bloody Tenant, his most comprehensive and radical publication. 
where he argues for freedom of conscience, separation of church and state, tolerance of other religions, and argues that government derives from the governed, not God. This gets him in a little trouble, and there are public burnings of his book. But his strong friendships earns him a charter. Sir Henry Vane, the former governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, being the most vocal proponent for Roger Williams. And so in 1644, Roger Williams arrives at the port of Boston, the center of the colony that he is banished from, with explicit permission from the English government to land there, overriding their banishment of him. And in his hand was a charter. But the charter was not for Rhode Island. The story is not over yet. It's not even for Rhode Island and Providence plantations. Roger Williams' 1644 charter was for, specifically, Providence Plantations in the Narragansett Bay. Yes, the road to Rhode Island is not over yet, and there are many challenges ahead, including William Coddington's own charter, and a less-than-legitimate charter that the Massachusetts Bay Colony will use to try to absorb Providence. And so, with our story unresolved, but on a promising track, I leave you here. And in our next episode, we will explore the life of Anne Hutchinson her followers, and the first English settlers of Rhode Island, the island proper, also known as Aquidneck Island. And with that, I'm Eric Giannis. Thank you for listening to the Other States of America History Podcast. 